just shot of the line. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary. Welcome to this week's edition of the Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. I'm Stuart McFarlane. And I'm Dale Clancy. And this week, a special interview with former Scotland and Lions centre, Scott Hastings. Tackling Scottish Rugby. Well, Dale, it's been a very busy few days for Scottish Rugby. We now know two of the teams, at least, that Scotland will face in the 2023 World Cup. We know that Gregor Townsend is now contracted to at least take Scotland to that World Cup. We know that Glasgow and Edinburgh are going to be up against it in Europe, having both lost in the opening weekend of their uh, European, respective European campaigns. And we know that Adam Hastings is going to be heading to Gloucester and he could be one of many players in the not-too-distant future leading the two Scottish clubs for pastures new, whether that be in England or indeed in France or, or further afield. It has been a, a busy few days. What of those stories have you picked up on and what would you see as the most pressing just now? You know, it's probably good getting uh, Townsend's contract down. It gives the squad a bit of direction and, you know, sometimes when coaches don't sign or don't know what they're going to be doing, it puts a little bit of unrest in our squad. So at least players know what they're working towards. That might kind of settle the ship with the professional teams as well because obviously at the moment both Edinburgh and Glasgow are going to find it very, very difficult in their pools, especially off the back of last week. Edinburgh showed signs of improvement and I think, you know, as much negativity that's went round about them recently, I think welcoming their big players back is it's obviously showed that they're still there or they about it's just coming up short obviously the, the pool's getting drawn with South Africa and, and Ireland but I think the big thing there is, is Hastings leaving it has to be I think there is a lot more to that than meets the eye in the press I think the Scottish rugby are, are very good at perhaps papering over the cracks and, and not letting you see too much underneath the surface but I think it's it does say a lot that we lose Finn Russell a couple of years ago and then Hastings' his understudy leaves shortly after and, and Cipriani said he's leaving Gloucester immediately so Hastings obviously has been lined up as the uh, kind of heir to the throne for that 10 jersey and, and going down to a competitive league now overall if these big players when they do develop and move on to then progress further I'm all for that I think that's great because we've not got a lot of professional teams it then opens up another space for a player to perhaps really shine and put a little bit more pressure on but all of our 10s at the moment are going to be apart from Vandervault we've got Russell in Paris we're going to have Hastings down in Gloucester and then we've got Weir in, in Worcester so we, none of our real competitive 10s are playing professional they've got no control over them so it's going to be really interesting I know Van der Merwe there's been whispers about him leaving Watson there's been whispers about him leaving as well in the press so I don't know what's really been going on with the professional teams but it seems like players are maybe had enough of that environment and want to try and go away and, and try and find something a little bit better and you often wonder as well, Dale, with uh, the Scottish players being together over the autumn for six, seven weeks, contesting the Autumn Nations Cup, the conversations that the players will have. Now, some will know each other an awful lot better than, than others, but when you look at the four down at Exeter and the, the success that Exeter have had both domestically and in Europe, that is surely going to be a big factor if you're a, you know, a young prop forward, a young second row forward, a young back who has ambition, 
you want to enjoy a bit of that, you want to taste a bit of that, and, and for Edinburgh and Glasgow to reach those sorts of levels, you feel they're going to have to climb mountains in a relatively short space of time to get anywhere near that. I think nowadays professional rugby players are, are a little bit more tuned in than what they used to be. I think that they look for a lot more than just game time and, and money. They, they like that environment. I've I, I listened to Jim Hamilton say a lot of the time about Saracen saying how, how good that environment was and they, they built that kind of, you know, they looked after the, the players' wives, their families, and they were all involved in this club atmosphere. And that's probably something that professional clubs, certainly I would say Edinburgh and Glasgow, they kind of miss that at the moment. They've not got that real club buy-in. And I think rugby clubs do need that. I think the borders had it when it was down here. It was just unfortunately it didn't take off. But they had that border buy-in. It was our club and it gave you that little link into the clubs as well. And that's what players want. They don't want to be flogged every week. They don't want to be taken a line of and given false promises. They want to progress. Anybody in any job wants to progress and really be valued at what they're doing. And if they're not getting that at the professional clubs in Scotland, they'll go elsewhere for it because we've got a lot of good players and these players will be a real value to other clubs if they were to go away and they would get that nurturing, they would get that support and that you know that well-being, that, that feel-good factor not being just a job, it's a, it's a lifestyle it's something that really adds to your character as well so there's obviously going to be a little bit more to come of it in the next few months as the season progresses there might be more players leaving, some players coming in but it's going to be interesting to see how that's going to unfold but certainly Hastings is a huge loss to Glasgow because Thompson can't kick goals and uh, Horns the, the other side of 30 so you know who have they got coming in after that? Sad of Hastings going to Gloucester might in, in some way explain the interest in Munster's Ben Healy because he was obviously linked with, with Glasgow a few weeks ago those were the rumours, the story was doing the rounds he may well then be a replacement for Hastings at, at some stage, but you do look at uh, you know who Glasgow have, of course, as backup just now. So that, that will be very interesting just to see how Glasgow attempt to shore up that position. We've quickly rattled through then four major talking points within the, the Scottish game. The one overarching emotion, I suppose, in rugby, in the rugby world this week, has been one of concern for player welfare and it's very much become a, a topic that is front and central not just as a sports story but as a, a general news story early onset dementia player concussion we've heard two three four recently retired professional players talking about their personal circumstances now as they look at a very very uncertain future so we've very much based this particular edition of the, the podcast around player welfare. And I'm delighted to say that this week we have joining us former Scotland and Lions centre, Scott Hastings. Tackling Scottish rugby. Scott, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. And I, I mention it as player welfare in, in various forms because I, I want to get on to talk about the most sort of pressing issue, the developing story around concussion. Is there a feeling, Scott, within rugby that the unions are still needing to be more vocal and more organised in, in how they approach and how they support retired players or current players who encounter very difficult times through falling into ill health, whether it be through numerous concussions and that, that yeah. then that leading on to brain trauma, etc. Here in Scotland, there is the Murrayfield Centenary Fund, which is there to help people who've suffered injury on the pitch. So, you know, there's a young boy, Eddie Rennick, down at Jedburgh, for example, broke his neck in a Jed Thistle game. 
And um, I visited in hospital years ago when I was playing for Scotland, and it, it gave me the fright of my life to see somebody in a wheelchair for the rest of life because he was playing a game that he loved. But what the Murrayfield Centenary Fund has been able to do is provide some finance to allow him to get on with his life. And there's numerous examples of players who've benefited from that. And there are uh, benefit funds across the union that allow that process to happen. Where I've been a little bit concerned at is that the modern day player, and, and recently Steve Thompson, for example, down in England, he has said he would sue on the basis, sue the union, and, and, and my concern with that is that he is playing a game that he was paid for. He knew the risk going into scrums. Now, whether he knew the risk that he was going to suffer long-term brain injury, that is of concern. Therefore, the unions, through their Injured Players Fund, can support players who ask for help. Does it get to litigation? Well, unfortunately, that's the way of the world. But if, 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 if that happens, it's a shame that it happens. But we've also got to look at the players who played in the amateur era, players who play at club level, uh, who play it for the love. And if they're injured, these are the people we also need to support. Yeah, I'm thinking of, obviously, you mentioned that the players from the amateur era, the most high profile and most recent example, I suppose, is, is Roy Laidlaw and the situation that Roy finds himself in at the moment. You're absolutely right. I and, mean, you know, he said himself that he thinks that the, the multiple knocks that he has had has... has uh, contributed to his dementia and uh, for rugby the authorities the rugby union the Murrayfield Centenary Fund has supported um, him but we also as we go through this sort of educational process there are other people out there that have suffered from dementia and Knox so therefore that community engagement that uh, sort of wraparound palliative care in some respects I think is part and parcel of how Unions can help players in difficult times. I think we just have to be careful that, you know, whilst there's a, a little bit of a focus on the, the current professionals suing the union, we have to understand that there has been a bit, you know, a, a process across world rugby that have allowed unions to help players who've got into difficulties. But at the moment, the, at the top echelon of the game, you know, some of the, the, the contacts that are going in uh, are a real concern. And it, it's just we've just got to be careful that we continue to lower the, the, the tackle height. We, we have to be aware of the fact that if players go in to jackal the ball, the clear out has to be accurate. It, it can't be discriminatory. You've got to watch where arms, shoulders hit next. And, and therefore, you know, the, the game's in a bit of a crux at the moment about how it adapts. How does it become more attractive? How does it become less physical? Because the double tackles in the professional game and some of these massive hits, it's quite shuddering at times. Obviously, rugby's, I would say, is one of the kind of forefront in terms of you know well-being and looking after players to an extent. Like HIA is obviously quite a modern improvement in professional yeah. sport. There's obviously a limited amount of, of protective gear as well. What do you think could be brought in to help that? Do you think it's refereeing and coaching, or do you think it's it's something a bit more than that that's needed to try and try and reduce the risk? Yeah, it's everything to do with that. It's the refereeing, it's the coaching, and the education. So even if you cascade down to the lower echelons of the game, you know, if in doubt, sit it out. The protocols for concussion and the management of concussion is really important. Now, when I played a number of years ago, if you got concussion, you were out for three weeks, mandatory three weeks. And then you had to wait another week until your next game on the Saturday. So in effect, you were out for a month. Now the players have a return to play protocol 
um, where there's a head injury, return to play protocol, where they have to go through a series of tests. Now, a number of years ago, I think it was Tom Evans had suggested that when they were conducting these tests, they would kind of cheat the tests. So if they did get a knock, their results, they could get through the test, basically, to allow them to play because they were earning bonus, money, et cetera, et cetera. So I think within the litigation of head trauma and concussion, I think we've got to be really careful because in the past, some players would have played on knowing that they didn't want to come off the pitch because they didn't want to give up their jersey to the replacement player who was coming on. They knew full well, you know, in some occasions, that they would have been concussed. But was there pressure that came on from coaches? Was there pressure that came on from doctors and medics to let them come on? So those areas of concern, that was in a period of about 2000 to 2010. I think the last sort of 10 years or so, uh, maybe five, six years ago, let's say, the protocols and management of concussion have been really good. And, you know, World Rugby knew there was a problem and reacted accordingly. But like everything, we can do more. In terms of doing more then, I want to bring up the the subject of players' families and people that are very close to players. Now, I had a conversation a few years ago with uh, Dr. Willie Stewart and one of the aspects of the conversation was around the support mechanism in place for not only the individual but the individual's families in terms of educating them and preparing them for the digression of the person's condition, how it, you know, it, it becomes more severe. Can we learn from football? Can football and rugby perhaps work together purely in a supportive sense to support these families? Because we we'll, we'll learn and we we'll understand footballers are tend to be diagnosed at, at a later age, they get through middle age into you know, retirement age before a lot of the players are. Alec Cropley was the latest one the other day we heard about. Could you see anything like that working together, hand in hand, to well, be helpful? Like you, I've met with uh, Willie Stewart, and uh, he's very widely respected out there for head trauma. And I think we're going to accept there are other sports in terms of boxing and horse riding, for example, where you're going to get knocks on the head, and it's how we manage that. So we're back to that education, we're back to that, the coaching. And in rugby in particular, let's be frank, it's a physical contact game, you're going to get a knock. But if you're taught where to stick your head and how to tackle and tackle lower, you're going to try and eliminate that. Now, in football, the SFA have already taken the heading of a ball out of the lower reaches of the game. As kids are growing up, they don't head the ball. So that's working in unison. So back to sort of schoolboy rugby, they've got to tackle lower. They've got to go below chest height at the very least. And you know what? It might become um, that you have to go below the waist. Now, interesting enough, the coaches, they respond by saying, if you tackle low, that means the player can offload the ball. Hey, hurrah, we've got a game of cat pass rugby. That's what we want to see. But because rugby, through its professionalism, through its rugby league, has gone for the double tackle and the high hit, it's to stop you offloading the ball. The one team in the world that offloads pretty well. The Fijians, aren't they, out of that contact? So as we go forward, and the Rugby World Cup draw held this week, and I put a tweet out to say, I wonder what the game will look like in two years' time. And I hope it changes. And it changes because coaches and players have to be more ambitious. We've just come through the Autumn Nations Cup. It was the most boring rugby you could ever watch in your life. And yet you come into the Heineken Cup and suddenly teams are willing to give the ball and throw the ball around and attack. And I thought one of the most outstanding games at the weekend was the victory that Scarlet's had against Bath. The willingness to move ball was extraordinary. 
And therefore, if coaches and players want to play the game like that, they can. But at the moment, we've got Eddie Jones, who's quite happy going for that win ratio. He just wants to win. And I can understand that. In professional sport, coaches are under pressure because they need to win. Look at the way Gregor Townsend and the Scotland rugby team, he came in, he started playing this fast, expansive game of rugby, and Scotland were leaking tries, you know, like water through a tea bag. And therefore, he tightened up his game, he strengthened his pack, and all betide, Scotland have actually started to win games. But are they going to win the games against England and France? Probably not. We struggle against Ireland. But on occasion, you know, we can beat other teams and beat them well. So you're then into that, you know, how do we play the game? And what, what I've been trying to balance or understand is that if you take seven-a-side rugby as the sort of more open game, what do we do in seven-a-side rugby? We attack the space and use the hands of the ball to create space and, and pace, right? Go to ten-a-side rugby, that space starts to tighten up. Go to 15-a-side rugby and suddenly there's no space. But there is, if you start to look and manage that. But it's a complex game there up at the top level and, you know, all the shenanigans of 23 players in a squad and, sure, you and I were commentating on the recent Edinburgh La Rochelle game. You know, gone are the days of Bill McLaren playing with 30 names, you know, 15 a side game, you 46 names you're going to have to mention on the field of play every, every time. So it's like learning, uh, you know, 16 more names when you're prepping for a game. And you, you think in terms of the, the game, the way it's played at the moment, you, you're just waiting on the day when the time comes where the leading try scorer in a competition is going to be a hooker from a, a driving ball five metres from the opposition line. But, you know, absolutely. But I think what we can do is we can address some of these issues where you don't allow the backs to join. It's purely the forwards who are involved in that. Going. That's why forwards are forwards. You know, we've seen a trend recently for, especially Scotland, uh, for three or four backs to join that driving ball because that's allowed within the laws of the game. So take that out of the game so they can't drive it. So then you've got eight on eight, so there's not an advantage. If, for example, uh, a team go pick and drive, pick and drive, pick and drive, and they get over the line and can't ground the ball, the favour goes to the attacking team who have another five-yard scrum. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to pick and drive and go again to try and hammer that line. To be absolutely honest, it's getting a bit boring. Where would you rather see a try? Score through the backs. So give the ball to the backs. So, you know, little things like if he's held up over the line, start with a 22 dropout, which means that teams and coaches are starting to get innovative again. So we've got to... The one thing about rugby union is it challenges thinkers. I think we've just got to think a little bit more about why the game's played. Keep challenging the game. Now, the one team that keeps challenging the game is New Zealand because the way they play it. And we've been through that power game but there's a lot of skillful players and the game of a game for, of different sizes should still be at the forefront of the game. While you're on, Scott, I wanted to ask you about the, the World Cup draw. It's been described as a, a group of death. It clearly is a very intriguing grouping of, of teams. We don't know the complete draw yet because there's still obviously nations to qualify. But South Africa and Ireland, teams we know so well, but both, well, obviously we have the holders there, and Ireland, who've been a, a thorn in our, the lion's paw, so to speak, for uh, a long time now. You only have to beat them once. Yeah, uh, and it's but, all, all about timing. It's all about timing, You're absolutely right, Stuart. Gregor Townsend will be measured on that World Cup performance. And therefore, as was in Japan, that key performance then boils down to Ireland. You beat Ireland, get off to a winning start. Scotland were terrible in the World Cup, terrible in the World Cup. It was embarrassing. 
And, you know, Japan were the form team. They also beat Scotland. But it was a tough draw. And it's going to be a tough draw. At the end of the day, Scotland does not have a divine right to dine at the top table every tournament they enter, every Six Nations. Could they win it? They've got to give themselves a chance. And I think, you know, if you look to, to the recent Autumn Nations Cup, Scotland, we have seen progress, right? But they came up short against Ireland. They came up short against France. And therefore, they go into the Six Nations knowing that they're going to have to work extremely hard, A, to get success, but also B, for these players to play with a consistency, to stick their hands up and get selected for a Lions tour. So this belief within their their systems, within the players, they have to create the environment for them to excel. And that means our top players playing man-of-the-match performances when they come to this year's Six Nations, because at the moment... The Heineken Cup's not looking great for Edinburgh and Glasgow. You've got Finn Russell out. You've got Adam Hastings out. You've got injuries left, right and centre. So the game's challenging at the moment. So just to, to rewind back a bit, because obviously Stuart's asking about the World Cup. Gregor Townsend mentioned last week about Scotland being a work in progress. So what's progress to you? What does that mean to you? Like, is it getting to the final of a World Cup? Is it just winning a Six Nations? What would be a kind of barometer for progress? Winning the next game. Scotland's always going to be a work in progress. They're always going to be. Um, I, you know, I, pl- I played in the international team for what, 12 seasons and we were always a work in progress. And yeah, I won a Grand Slam. I got to the semi-final of a World Cup. But the game's tough now. And, and you know, the players have got to adapt. They've got to realise it's a tough environment out there. And our youngsters who come in and train hard, well, sorry guys, you're going to have to train harder. Nothing's given to you on a plate these days. You've got to learn your craft and it's a hugely physical game at the moment. You're at the beck and call of a, a coach's tactics, etc. So what is progress? I, I, I suppose it's trying to get wins on the pitch, but also the quality of the win and develop players, bringing in you know, up-and-coming youngsters. Really tough question, actually, Dale, to answer. And, you know, Scotland, for me, Scotland have always had to almost try doubly hard to win the games that they've been involved in. And to beat England at Twickenham in the opening game of the Six Nations is going to be hard. So you, you want to hit two, you want to try and win your home games and see if you can pick up anything on the road. So that, for me, is progress. Scott, I'm going to weigh in with another sort of tricky question. I'm, I'm just working out the best way to sort of put it to you. But in terms of ambition of individual players, the players that are at Edinburgh and Glasgow at the moment, come the next World Cup, between sort of now and then, do you envisage a mass exodus of the top talent from both Edinburgh and, and Glasgow? Because as individuals, they want to play at a high level at club level. It's already happening. Uh, you know, I just mentioned my nephew, Adam Hastings, and Adam's just signed for Gloucester. You've had you know, Stuart Hogg and uh, Johnny Gray going to Exeter, along with Sam Hidalgo Klein. You do have an exodus, and the reason being is the environments that, that were in place at Edinburgh and Glasgow, they've let them slip. They, they haven't created they haven't created that atmosphere to allow the players to feel happy, confident, and Scotland are always going to be up against it in terms of their signings because the the power of the game in terms of the financial power rests in England and in France. And you know, players' lives are, are, are short enough. But having said that, the reason that people want to go to Exeter is they've created an environment down there over many, many years, a great coaching team. And Quite frankly, Rob Baxter's kept that environment going and he's hit the top of the tree in terms of European success, premiership success. It's not by accident. 
It's been a 10-year process. But by goodness, if anybody turns around and says, do you want to go and play at Exeter? You want to go and play. If, you, if you're living in Devon and Cornwall, in the southeast of England, who do you want to play for? You want to play for Exeter because they've got those clubs absolutely singing off the same tree. I want to play for Exeter. I want to play for Exeter. That's the, that's the ambience there. And I think, you know, Glasgow a couple of years ago were playing fantastic rugby, got the final of the Pro 14. But since then, there's been no one, for me, it doesn't appear there's been investment. Dave Rennie didn't really bring anybody in, Callum Gibbons, but he's away back to New Zealand or is he Japan he's in at the moment. Um, you know, suddenly it's just short-termism. And, and, and suddenly the game's in turmoil. And Richard Cockrell, I think, was the right person to bring in. And unfortunately, it's just not clicking for Edinburgh. But let's remember the pandemic has had a huge effect on the game and playing, you know, the lack of crowds. Well, Edinburgh playing the lack of crowds anyway at <laughs> Murrayfield. But somehow we've got to get back and change the narrative so everybody starts backing their club teams. It's a hard one, though, Stuart, because I don't want to sound despondent and negative, but it is a worry. It really is a worry. And whilst our sort of, um, you know, the top SRU officials seem to be backing, you know, applauding themselves with increased pay packets, the, the challenge is, is that the pay packets down, you know, amongst the players in the academy is so low in some respects that that means that players are, are seeking fortunes elsewhere. Difficult, difficult one, though, I, I understand that. But sometimes I think we need to have a reality check, Stuart and, and Dale, that, you know, this game is not maybe not as big as we think it is. I want to ask you one final question from me, and it's about a 2019 full house at Murrayfield. When you're there as a commentator, when you're there as a, a, a Scotland fan, how does that atmosphere then compare to when you were a player? Do, do you always go back to sort of the late 80s, early 90s and, and sort of prefer that raw atmosphere that existed then? Or do you like this sort of family atmosphere and the warmth that has been created during the, the latter days of the, the professional era. Don't get me wrong, um, commentating at a pack Scotsman, what a brilliant atmosphere that was. And it was with jealousy, being an Edinburgh man, that Glasgow were leading the way in terms of a, a raucous, boisterous crowd. And by goodness, Glasgow packed out the stadiums, played attractive rugby, but they've let it slip by letting their star players go in. Now, they could have built a squad around Johnny Gray and Stuart Hogg uh, and by keeping them in this country, you know, and by keeping them playing for their teams and allowing them the opportunity to build that club and, and, and get another four or five players behind them, and suddenly you've got momentum and you're looking at success. They don't need to go down to Exeter to apply their trade. And, and Edinburgh have always struggled to a certain extent because Murrayfield's never been the right atmosphere. It was like when Glasgow used to play at Fir Hill. I hated that place. And I was just going there to work and commentating games. But it was a soulless place. It was absolutely soulless. So to move to Scotland was a fix in some respects, albeit there's an athletics track away from the pitch. But it is a good atmosphere. And, and somehow Scottish rugby have to work on getting those fans back in and start to actually make the game attractive to come and watch. But with Edinburgh rattling around in Murrayfield in a 67,000-seater stadium has done nothing for the game in the capital. And I appreciate many Murrayfield has now been built out in the back pitches. But even that, I'm a wee bit concerned. It's a temporary stadium with a stanchion every 10 metres. So, you know, it obscures your view. But somehow we need to encourage more people back into supporting the game. But... You know, they will follow, they will come back and uh, hopefully some glory days Scottish rugby will return both at club level uh, at Edinburgh and Glasgow 
and international that that winning success deal as you were talking about what's progress well winning is really important no absolutely scott i think we'll leave it there because that's a fairly upbeat way to to finish an honest but uh, quite upbeat way to draw the the conversation to a close but uh, thank you very much for your time today sir i absolutely know you know just talking you know the area of sure where you are you know the borders it's a fantastic pedigree of ground and somehow we have to bring some vibrancy back into borders rugby and and, and get people along so we're all missing our club rugby at the moment i, I miss i live down near golden acre heriot's ground I'll go watch them on a Saturday or nip up to Marseille and I'll go watch a club game. But you go and do your analysis to these Nevis club members who with Murrayfield who go and support Scotland. They don't go and watch club rugby. But that's where, you know, we've, we've lost that. There's a disconnect within the game. We lost the umbilical cord a number of years ago, which was that club game connected to the district game connected to the, an international game. And now you go and watch professional rugby or you watch club rugby. I know it's a real concern in the borders, numbers coming through turnstiles, and also, you know, who these people are and, and their connection. Are they just there for one game because they've been invited along by a friend, or are they immersed in the sport? Have they been around the sport a long time and will go until it's physically impossible for them to carry on going? I know, and, and, and as the numbers get eroded, we've got to give people a reason for going back to their clubs. So, you know... Big conundrum there, but we'll see what happens. We've got, we've got, a, we've got a boarder who's the chairman of Scottish Rugby. He'll come up with an answer, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> the Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. Scott Hastings joining us to talk about a, a very topical issue and an issue I think that uh, has perhaps been one we've been crying out to discuss and look at and really identify this and, and look at it under the microscope and, and see the, the direction of play and the support that's in place for men in particular that have been affected by this. Not just those that have retired many years ago, but those that have recently retired and are facing a, a very uncertain future. Dale, I, I don't know about you, but listening to Steve Thompson, I was astonished to learn that he has no recollection of playing any part of England's success at the 2003 World Cup. Even as somebody who'd never met Steve Thompson, it's still frightening to think that that can happen to somebody so young and be so devastating to his family yeah. and to himself, of course. It's shocking to, to kind of see that come out. And there's obviously a lot of people pop them as well. You know, there, there's a lot of players who have similar scenarios and, and, they've, and they've been involved in similar things. So it's, it's just a difficult one. It's such a difficult one to kind of get your head round and to try and you know, weed out what's wrong and what's right. And there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot to it. Like the, the game of rugby has developed so much, even in the last 10 years. It's become this massive muscular battle between two teams, big squads, but big hits. And it's not just big ball carriers. It's not like so that and putting your head in the wrong position, but it's the, the type of impact, even making a tackle in the right position. How can you control that? It's it's such a difficult thing to try and manage, and I've always thought like, do you see head guards and, and mouth shields are they're, they're compulsory to play professional rugby or even adult rugby or any level of rugby? But that comes down to finance, and you know it's just a, it's a really difficult thing to try and manage. But it's not nice to see. We're aware that there's obviously different health ramifications and it's, it's followed us through this podcast I think most episodes we've had on we've seen that rugby community go through them from the, the early ones when we had Roy Laidlaw we've had Doddy Weir and now obviously we're talking about this as well in terms of concussion we've had a lot of different health topics throughout and it's just a difficult one to, to manage and I think this is certainly not going away anytime soon not that you want it to go away you want it to try and be managed and 
and certainly controlled, but it's just finding the right way to reduce the risk and, and try and lessen the impact. Yeah, I think it's about fully understanding the bigger picture. One aspect of our conversation with Scott that I, I was particularly keen to, to get his thoughts on around the support of families who have a, a member of their family who is suffering from Alzheimer's, early onset dementia, and how the family as a unit then are looked after, not specifically financially, that clearly is important, but emotionally and from an educational point of view. And I know that uh, Jeff Astle's family, the former England and West Bromwich Albion footballer, they have done so much along with Amanda Capel in, in Scotland to raise the profile of uh, dementia within the footballing world and extending that to become a, a topic that is covered in current affairs and in the, the general wider media. And I suppose rugby has to look at the individual cases, the seven, eight players that have been at the front and centre of the, the discussions uh, the last few days and make sure that they and so many others, including your Royal Aid Laws, are, are, are supported properly. And that, that can't be easy. Yeah, and that, that's one thing that I think I find the hardest in it all is any illness. I think out with sport, any illness at all is... And this is what I was trying to ask Scott as well. When you're out with that, when you're when you're one step back, is the amount of emotions you go through and how helpless you feel. You've got guilt, you've got pity, you've got a bit of, uh, you know, you feel bad because you can't help anymore, but you're not qualified enough to help. And I think that's the that's the difficulty. You, can, you can't put a price on that. You can't put a price on being able to help, like, that side of things. But there just needs to be a little bit more research overall. I don't think it matters if it's football or rugby or ice hockey or American football or boxing, springboard diving, whatever it might be. There's obviously a, a degree of risk in, in them all. The links and the hard work and the collaborative work needs to be done to, to try and see how these things are on set, how they're, how they're triggered, what can be, be done to help reduce it. Like the American football players are, are head to toe, guards, shields, gums, gloves, knees, everything. I would be interested to see the figures in terms of serious injury, um, in terms of impact injury from American football to rugby. Because surely they're the ones that are closest linked. And I, I do get it. There's obviously a link to football in terms of heading a ball and especially an older ball. Years ago, the, the balls aren't as light as what they used to be. It's finding the link between that and it's, it's you know, it's not just sticking to the UK and, and saying, right, in this country, we've got a lot of ex-professional footballers and professional rugby players. It's, it's looking a little bit wider than that because it's a common theme. We've all got the same type of body. We all trigger over the same type of thing. So I don't even know why I'm trying to um, articulate that because I'm, <laughs> there's obviously this work going on. It's, it's just... I find it hard and difficult to try and come up with the answer because there's a group of players obviously looking for some sort of support or blame or, you know, pointing the finger at somebody. And that's a hard word to say because I don't think it is that. It's not like it's a it's a money-grabbing exercise, but you've got them. But then on the other side, you've got, like, say, Lewis Moody and Sam Warburton saying that they knew the risks and they, they were cared for to the best of their ability at the time. There's nobody to blame for it. It's such a difficult topic to speak about, I think, and I particularly find it hard because I think there's so much to it. You almost feel a little bit kind of cheeky speaking about it because, like, who am I? I don't, at the moment, I don't have any experience of a brain injury as such so it's 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 a hard thing to try and put out an opinion to I just feel I just feel like those emotions I feel pity and guilt and I feel like I, I can do more but I don't and then you're, you're hard on yourself but it's difficult because do you support the person do you support the family is it financial is it emotional is it proactive is it reactive I don't know how do you try and plan for something that you don't know the answer to 
And as well, I suppose you could look down the route of genetics and are certain individuals more susceptible perhaps to a, a condition like this? And that is then accelerated again if, if they go down the route of taking on an occupation like boxing or perhaps horse racing or uh, rugby football where th there is a, a high risk of you ending up with a, a head injury, ending up with a, a concussion. I suppose it, it's healthy that it, it is in the public domain. It's very sobering that it, it has come about in this way. And I suppose the, the best thing that, that we can do as, a, as a, you know, a provider of information through the podcast is, is try and be very supportive and, and very rational to the, 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 you know, the people that, that require some support. And uh, as a topic, long may it continue to be you know, being a, a front and central discussion. I think that the, the one thing that I do like is what Lewis Moody and Sam Orbiton are saying is at the time that they were injured and the time they were working, they were cared for to the best of the person's ability for the knowledge that they knew. And it, obviously there's got to be a bit of a progression in terms of the understanding. And I always remember like a couple of years before I finished playing, I did start getting a couple of head knocks, started wearing a head guard, but there was a game in Jed and I got a, a knock to the side of the head at a ruck. And I remember who it was, it was you and Scott, right? It was, I can remember he just came in at the side and his shoulder caught my temple and knocked out, bit of water. And I remember we run this great move and uh, Neil Warnock, our fly half at the time, said, we're running fajita. And I went to him, what's that? Now, I, I ran it all the time, and I just remember saying, what's that? At full time, I looked at the scoreboard where captain at the time, Davy Payton, and it, I think it was like 21-8 or something. And I went to him, I goes, well, we'll turn this round in the second half. And this was, say, nine, ten years ago. At the time, that was fine. That was accepted. It was an amateur sport. It was just, if you got a head knock, it's fine. You'll, a couple of weeks off and you'll recuperate. I don't think that would happen now. And not from a, a medical point of view. I think that's more of a player's point of view and a player being a little bit more streetwise with their well-being and saying, like, I'm not going on, like, I'm not right, I'm not going on. Wouldn't say it'll happen all the time, but certainly I think there's been that little bit of education in the last 10 years in terms of players looking after themselves as well. But for that to work, you need all pieces of the jigsaw to work. You need the coaches to be able to be strong-willed enough to say that they're removing a player. You need medical staff to be strong-willed enough to do the same. And these little cheats that Scott Hastings was on about in the system before, Tom Evans was on about, they just cannot happen. Because that's when you start blaming people. That's when you can start pointing the finger and saying that you knew this, but you didn't act on it. And that's the difficulty. I don't think that my little concussion or knock or whatever I got in the game down at Riverside Park a few years ago, I don't think that that would happen now, in my opinion. Yeah, and that example there that you gave, there were no people's replacements to then come on the field of play. So had you gone off, you would your team would have been a man down. Now you think nowadays, <laughs> maybe a bit better you're, off. You're, but but you think nowadays a coach would accept we're continuing on with fourteen men. We don't have any replacements. We don't have any fit players on the bench. But we've got a you know a, a centre here. We've got a back here who has to come off for his well-being, and the, the team will clearly have to sort of deal with the. The, the consequences of losing a man, but his welfare is, is absolutely paramount, given the, the nature of the injury in particular. You've been listening to the Tackling Scottish Rugby podcast. Future episodes will include a very special interview with Doddy Weir as we approach the festive period as well. We're also going to be catching up with former Scotland fullback Andy Irvin. 
we'll like to thank Scott Hastings for his time. You'll hear Scott as well talking about his support to the Doddy Weir Foundation. He's been absolutely key and an integral part of, of getting the foundation up and running. But as I say, all that to come. Great to catch up with you again, Dale. And I want to finish by asking you Christmas shopping. Where are you with it? Have you got everything you need? Do you need any sort of suggestions, hints? Is it Thursday at Lidl you go down the middle aisle? So, um, no, I'm getting there, getting there. I think we're trying to obviously be a bit mindful of the situation and, and, and be a bit realistic about what's going on. So I think everybody, I think all the family and that have been quite understanding of, of what we've got and been a little bit more um, appreciative of, of that we've all still in good health. So a couple of things still to pick up, but I finished work on Friday, so hopefully I'll get a couple of weeks to, well, a week before Christmas to get the stuff done, because I think if I get it the, the week after, I'll be in trouble. So what about you? You got stuff? You got my present? You got mine? Sorry? Yeah. Oh. Just wrapped, all ready for delivery. I'll give you, a po- I'll give you the yes, forwarding address. Uh, that, that, that's uh, when uh, holidays prior to Christmas time are uh, perhaps uh, advantageous. But no, just to echo your, your sentiments there, it's all about staying safe and uh, ensuring that you have a, a safe but equally enjoyable time over the festive period. But you'll catch us next week for our next episode. <laughs> Just shot of the line. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary.